0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey.
1: And I'm Marshall Hildreth. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we're joined live by Mark Dunley for a recap of the State of the State by Governor Hochul. Then Moses Nagel speaks with Fred Nagel of Veterans for Peace about the recent Kingston protests for a ceasefire in Gaza. Later on, Sophia Kalaline interviews Professor Sybil Adali about STEM. After that, Brad Monkel interviews comedian Travis Steely. And finally, we wrap up with Tom Francis highlighting poet Nathan Smith. But first, here are the headlines.
0: The Times-Union reported that the Saratoga Economic Development Corporation is appealing a unanimous appellate court decision that it must comply with the Public Authorities Accountability Act, a move that would require them to adhere to open meetings law, fulfill Freedom of Information Act requests, and allow state oversight of public money. The board argues that companies seeking taxpayer payouts should be able to speak frankly, without fear that information will be provided to their competitors.
1: The city of Hudson began the demolition of a historic 1800 shanty fishing village on the Hudson River waterfront last week. This is in spite of the protest of some local residents who state that they were given assurances some of the historic structures would remain once the city was transferred ownership from the state. The state has said it wants at least one of the historic structures to be preserved.
0: A pro-Palestine rally on Friday turned tense after a group of protesters went to U.S. Representative Pat Ryan's office in Kingston. Over 150 residents peacefully gathered to call for a ceasefire, subsequently heading to the Congress member's office to ask for his support. The police were present and made no arrests. Ryan, who has been a vocal supporter of his of Israel's actions in response to Hamas, claims that the protesters forced their way in, climbed over the office's roof to hang banners, and threatened his staff. Ten tents were erected outside of the office, but Congressmember Ryan's staff did state that no threats were made, and we will have a story with uh, Fred Nagel on this later in our program.
1: A new report from the State Department of Health found that food insecurity is on the rise, impacting one in every four adults. While the hunger problem was the highest in New York City, locally food insecurity is at 21.3% in Albany County, 17.3% in Rensselaer County, and over 16% in Saratoga and Schenectady counties. Some lawmakers are seeking for the state to raise the minimum amount of SNAP benefits households can receive.
0: A 13-year-old has been arrested after a loaded semi-automatic gun was found in his locker at Oneida Middle School in Schenectady.
1: Channel 10 reports Troy Mayor Carmela Montillo has appointed Kevin Pryor as the city's first director of diversity, opportunity, and outreach. The position will focus on building relationships with youth and minority communities within the city, as well as connect the residents of Troy to programs available to them, which includes mentorship opportunities and employment openings.
0: Troy detectives are investigating a video which shows a presumably houseless man carrying a large plastic bag being forcefully escorted out of the Uncle Sam Lane's bowling alley on Saturday night right before the region's first major snowfall. The man was threatened by the bowling alley's night manager, Tom Walsh Jr., with a bucket of what is assumed to be cold water. As Walsh quickly counts up to 30, a man, the man makes his way to the sidewalk, complying with the manager's demands. Once Walsh reaches the end of the countdown, he then throws the liquid on the man, and the man appears to curse at the night manager. The manager then throws the rest of the liquid in his face, and the owner of the alley, uh, the, owner of the alley, Walsh's mother, Lorraine, says that he has been terminated, but noted that the victim had had previous problems at the facility.
1: New York is experiencing the most significant COVID-19 wave since the end of the federal public health emergency in April. This wave is being driven by a highly divergent new variant.
0: And that's it for the headlines. And now for our first segment, we turn to the State of the State, which took place on Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. Governor Hochul delivered her annual address in which she lays out her priorities for the coming year with a positive outlook that evokes applause. The bad news, the hard numbers, they tend to come out in the state budget, which this year will be on January 16th, and we're now joined by Mark Dunley to help us digest this year's State of the State. Mark, what were some of the highlights of Governor Hochul's speech?
2: Well, Cena uh, it was a, a fairly subdued speech. Uh, the biggest applause came when she introduced the various legislative leaders. Uh, there weren't really uh, any new initiatives which brought the House down, and on the issues where lawmakers politely applied it, um, they were going to hold off uh, to, until they saw the actual details. Uh, she did have a focus on crime and on, men, on the mental health system. She did mention uh, climate and affordable housing. Um, in the week prior to this uh, speech, she had uh, laid out um, proposals to increase paid medical leave benefits and eliminate uh, co pays for insulin. Um, she, however, in this speech largely ignored how to solve the multi-billion dollar state budget deficit, though she has made it clear that tax heights, especially taxes for the rich, is off the table. Uh, there was very little on poverty, hunger, or welfare, uh, though she did mention the need to address wage theft. Uh, the migrant issue got less intention uh, than I think most of us expected, though she did indicate she would deal with it in next week's uh, state budget. She did unveil a plan to help immigrant entrepreneurs to secure visas and start businesses here, especially those who earn graduate degrees in New York. Um, She, however, did not push for any immigrant reform measures like uh, um, legal assistance in um, immigration cases.
0: A major issue in her gubernatorial race was crime, particularly the issue of uh, repealing bail, which they blame for her low margin of victory in the heavily democratic state. So major crime, however, actually remains fairly low in the state. So how did this come up in the state of the state?
2: Well, what she focused on was on this perceived major increase in shoplifting, particularly at small retail athletes which has definitely become a national media focus. Um, though the data kind of shows otherwise, and this has often been true throughout our history, that at moments of political unrest shoplifting becomes a big national issue. Um, she wants increased penalties for repeat offenders. Uh, she wants to crack down on those involved and help them to resell any stolen goods. Uh, she did avoid the bill issue, but she also avoid Uh, supporting any criminal justice reform, like one of my favorites, uh, parole for many elderly prisoners. Um, She stressed public safety, saying that people feel nervous in places like Subway or worry about their children on the streets. Um, She linked this to the need for more mental health services, uh, certainly something that's long been needed. Uh, She pled to revolutionize the mental health treatment system, uh, proposing to add 200 new inpatient psychiatric beds and better equip law enforcement to handle people with mental health problems. She also did call for additional resources to address what she calls hate crimes, uh, as well as to reduce uh, the dismissal race and domestic violence cases. But uh, her idea of hate crimes focused on anti-Semitism and not other victims, at least in her speech.
0: Affordable housing was her big priority last year, and it largely went nowhere. So, how was it addressed this year?
2: Well, she did raise it, but she seemed like she wasn't, you know, pushing quite as hard given her defeat last year. Um, you know, last year they legislators balked at overriding zoning regulations in many suburban communities in order to, you know, allow for more affordable housing. Affordable housing. Um, so she's proposing a $500 million fund to construct housing on state-owned land and reestablish a program that previously gave developers breaks to create so-called affordable housing and buildings in New York City, like my so-called luxury condo that technically is in Bed-Stuy. Why you need to pay to build condos in on. Brooklyn's beyond me. Um, she's also pushing for certain statewide funding programs required of local governments, uh, you know, prioritize housing growth. Um, but you know, she avoided key issues, you know, on tenant reform, such as support for the Good Cause Eviction Law, which Albany had passed, uh, but the courts have basically um, struck down so far. Though the Court of Appeals is expected to take it up.
0: Um, Mark, I know that you and many other climate activists have been pushing for her to do more on climate, especially as we have been hearing more and more that last year um was reached the one point five target. Um so what was her climate agenda? Or it was rapid we're close to that one point five. So what is her climate agenda?
2: Well, one comment that a lot of activists made was despite all the extreme weather in two thousand and twenty three. Um, both in New York and throughout the United States and the planet, she largely avoided the uh, climate crisis in her speech. So there's a bit more in the, you know, the written document that goes along. Uh, certainly no sense she was dealing with a climate emergency. The big climate news, which was a bit of a surprise, was that she announced support for several parts of what's known as the New York Heat, Heat Act. Which is designed to make sure that existing policies by state agencies are changed to come into alignment with the goals of the new CLCPA. Many people know that the big one is the so called 100 foot roll, which basically provides a massive subsidy for fossil fuels by providing new gas hookups for free, you know, for gas pipelines if it's in 100 feet of an existing line. The one part of the heat act she did not announce support was to cap utility bills at 6% of low-income um, residents for low- and moderate-income uh, households, 6% of income. Uh, though she did say she wanted to support a look at other ways to lower energy bills. Um, her big initiative, which she started last year, and frankly, unfortunately, probably has a few more years before it actually comes into being, is to impose carbon pricing on the use of fossil fuels commonly known as cap and trade. Uh, The state's climate law, which was passed four and a half years ago now, did set a deadline of the beginning of this year to develop a plan on how to reduce greenhouse gas emission. Um, That's what this carbon pricing is supposed to do. She did not make that deadline, which the media actually seems more concerned about than some of the climate activists. She did release what's called a pre-proposal, Um, last month, but that basically means it's likely another six months or longer before final regulations are adopted. Um, There weren't any other big climate announcements, though she did announce a number of smaller initiatives um, that are not game-changers but are still important uh, in the move to a clean energy future. Wants to help people voluntarily sell their coastal houses? which seems a bit of a bailout from the more affluent, wants to plant millions of trees, though that's less than what's called cool for in the state climate action plan, help people with health problems, low-income people get air conditioners. Probably one of the things our friends over at the Radix Center want to do is um, a, a lot of greening of cities, um, more trees and, and things of that um, nature. Not a lot, a lot on the environment.
0: So something that was uh, unprecedented today that t- or that took place on this Tuesday, but the state of the state was that there was a virtual lockdown. So the public was not able to come um, to the Capitol. So, um, and what was this all about?
2: Well, that's a good question. And I think the media is, is also interested in answer to that question. Uh, one of the things I noted was that uh, they also restricted access for the media, like say independent media, like, this news program. And even those who commonly work at the Capitol for the media had to reapply today to get access. So that was pretty strange. Um, clearly, she did not want protesters there, um, which is tra- traditional, especially in the last 10 years, uh, started particularly with the fight over fracking. So why this year she felt she needed to get rid of protesters a little bit unclear. They still appeared, some of the fossil fuel activists, some of the people with... Um, uh, helping people, uh, s- safety on uh, drug issues. Um, uh, my suspicion is that she was really worried about uh, pro-Palestinian um, protesters, which quite mad at her for her unbridled support for um, for Israel. There was a very large demonstration which we're about to hear about in Kingston on Friday at Congressman Ryan's office, and perhaps she was concerned that she would be a target. but. I hope somebody sues personally um, because this was a big crackdown on the first amendment.
0: Mark Dunley, we appreciate your uh, policy reporting and climate activism. And thank you for joining us to give us a a wrap up of the state of the state.
2: Thank you for your coverage.
0: Thank you.
1: Our next segment, Moses Nagel spoke with Fred Nagel for, from veterans for peace in the Hudson Valley who helped organize a large protest at the office of U.S. Representative Pat Ryan on January 5th. He began by talking about the changes in the demographics of the organizers of these protests.
3: First of all, they're so young. They're really, they're half my age. Uh, So there's a few older people, these planning groups, but it's mostly young people. It's college, you know, people in their 20s, people in their 30s. So that, that's a change I haven't seen, you know, for an awful long time, especially from local events, that it's really being organized and, and the, the emotion is really coming from a, a different generation. They really know social media. They know how to get coverage in the various uh, Kingston Freeman, uh, various other news organizations, and that's part of their planning. Um, I'm very impressed. With uh, this, the next generation—it's real experience working with these people to plan this event, these events that we've had one in Newburgh, we had one in Poughkeepsie, we have had one in Rhinebeck, and we—this is the second one, actually, uh, in Kingston.
4: And, and I, is there a specific group that they're
3: working under the banner of? Well, we have—I uh, would say 15 to 20 organizations. Uh, that are helping us do this. The ones I know of, and I'm I'm a member of uh, Veterans for Peace, for example, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, Mideast Crisis Response, Women in Black. But there's a whole bunch of new uh, groups involved, including the College Students for Justice in Palestine and uh, the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, so, there are definitely new youth groups involved in
4: this as well. So, tell me about what actually happened on Friday.
3: Well, uh, we had gathered outside the county legislature and we had made a call out for tents. And so, I think we had about five tents. We just picked up and marched uh, with them uh, along with a crowd. We had some uh, additional very large puppets. So it was more like a gala event uh, as we marched uh, through Wall Street and eventually came to Pat Ryan's office where the uh, tents were put down again and uh, signs were put on them and uh, people essentially occupied the streets in front of the tents and uh, people gave uh, talks for about an hour. The banners were hung from the building that Pat Ryan's office uh, is in, uh, I think there are two or three very large banners uh, urging him to support ceasefire now, which he's resisted doing. He's resisted talking about the Palestinians. He's resisted, you know, calling for an end to the slaughter. If you press him, he'll talk about his Jewish family, but that's not really what we we've asked him. You know, he he never gives a good reason why he's against the ceasefire. We'll hardly ever acknowledge that over 8,000 children have been massacred in this uh, bombing uh, by Israel. You know, he, he really doesn't want to talk about that. And, and that's why we, we keep pushing it and demanding that, you know, he talk with us. And I've been in two meetings with him. He's very nice. He's very considerate. He's he's really sort of playing his uh young man you know with a lot of courage and he's you know been in the army graduated from west point blah 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 he plays on that but he he never really answers the basic question of why he's not for a ceasefire we haven't sort of nailed him yet about his contributions from the israel lobby which is a real problem he gets around thirty thousand uh, a year from the israel lobby so you know what does that buy him? So we're we're really really pushing this, and uh, so with meetings for him, I'm you know uh, we're asking questions uh, like that, like what's what's the money buy uh, you, and um, and he really doesn't you know, he he first said uh, right off that he doesn't get money from the Israel lobby, but when we uh, talked about Open Secrets. You know, he backed off from that, and uh, you know, acknowledged that he does get some money from the Israel lobby. It's a lot of money—twenty-eight thousand a year. And what does that uh, what does that buy him? You
4: know. Well, I want to get to some of his statements here, but one of the things he says is that he has a plan for a lasting peace that he's put out there.
3: Yeah, his plan for a lasting peace is uh, the two-state solution, which. Israel has never wanted, uh, has has brought in about 700,000 settlers to make sure there isn't any, you know, land for uh, a Palestinian homeland. Uh, so the, the realities on the ground really don't support that at all. And, um, you know, that, that's just another way of saying, well, let's work on this, but Israel's been saying the same thing for 30 years, you know. Uh, offering a two-state solution, but uh, at the same time filling up the Palestinian state with Israeli settlers. Um, And so there really is no state, you know, left for the Palestinians. It's just another obfuscation, you know, looking like you're doing something but not doing anything at all.
4: Let's talk about this press release that came out from his office on the day of the protest that says, Today, a crowd attempted to forcibly enter our office in Kingston, climbing the roof, interrupting work with constituencies, and directly threatening my staff. They had to throw their bodies in front of a door to keep the crowd from forcing it open and fear for their safety. In the media, some people at the protest saying this isn't true and that they were actually talking with the young, staff that were at the office. Uh, did you witness any of this? Do you know anything about what happened? Well,
3: uh, I didn't go up the stairs, and so I wasn't a direct witness to that. I've I talked to a number of people who have said that there was no shouting, that there was no pushing. There was an attempt to talk to the people in his office, but that there was no violence. Uh, so, but, you know, that's, I didn't see it firsthand, so I, I can't guarantee. I think it's, Exactly what the Zionists want to do is, of course, he turns the focus on trying to invade his office so he doesn't have to talk about 8,000 Palestinian children, 22,000 civilians that have been killed in Gaza. He, he preferred to talk about, well, did you push on the door? Did you knock too hard? You know, were you yelling? According right. to the witnesses I've talked about, there wasn't any yelling at all. There wasn't any trying to push the door open. So, you know, it's a typical response of people who don't want to talk about the larger issues. They want to just talk about how they were threatened by the demonstrators. So it's, it's just a ploy, and the, the media goes right along with it. You know, half the article is, you know, did they try to push them their way in? Did did somebody yell was somebody fearful? You know, these are the issues they'd like to concentrate on rather than why the U.S. is slaughtering people and committing genocide in Gaza. You know, 2.2 million people. They would rather not
4: talk about that. Tell me if, you, if you've if got any events coming up and what you're thinking about right now to keep your show sure. afloat and keep working. Well, we have a great panel
3: that's going to be at Upstate Films on the 28th. And uh, it's really an interesting panel. We have uh, two Palestinians and uh, two uh, Jewish... uh, One is uh, a man who fought uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces, a citizen of Israel. Uh, Another of the speakers is the... uh, New Palt's faculty member, uh, she's a, a Jewish uh, chaplain there. Uh, then we have uh, Talal Jabari, he's a Palestinian filmmaker from Rheinbeck. And then we have Raz Sadiq, a Jordanian-Palestinian artist, and she lives in uh, New Paltz. So we've done one panel of them and they discuss uh, Israel-Palestine and how we got where we got and, and how to end the bloodshed. Uh, we turned down about 100 people who couldn't get in. It was that popular. And people want to make sense out of this. I think people are, are desperate to to understand what they could possibly do uh, to stop this bloodshed. So uh, that that's coming up Sunday, January 28th. Upstate Films. It's called Yearning for Peace and Justice, a teach-in on Israel-Palestine.
1: That was Fred Nagel of Veterans for Peace and co-organizer of the recent rally in Kingston calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. He spoke with Moses Nagel.
0: And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey.
1: And I'm Marshall Hildreth. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and lp 106.9 FM Albany, and always streaming online at MediaSanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media, located in Troy, New York.
0: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM.
1: Next, we dive into our archives for this interview by former intern Sophia Callahan as part of her series on STEM.
5: This is Sophia Callahan with Professor Sibel Adali from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where she researches slash teaches computer science. So I was... Curious. Um, how did you originally get interested in the STEM field or
6: computer science? Um, I was thinking about this because this may come up. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in Turkey. Um, basically, there were two uh, two types of professions where you could have a very good uh, career. One was being a doctor. One was being a uh, you know um, technical person. So I definitely knew I didn't want to be a doctor. Because I had to uh, memorize things, and I have a. (laughs) And you don't with computer. (laughs) You really don't. You only have to know very few uh, basic things, and then you can drive everything from basic principles. So, um, I kind of started from that, and you know, ultimately it ended up being uh, something that I truly enjoy, because it was kind of a problem solving, and evolved from there. Yeah. So,
5: did you? study, like, did you originally study in Turkey or did you come to the United States early on for?
6: I, um, so I did not really touch a computer until I went to college, which is very uncommon nowadays. Yes. <laughs> I guess I did have a, um, a calculator where I did some very simple basic programming, like in my last high school class, but, um, I, I really didn't do any programming until I went to school. And um, you know, at the time there was like no home computers. You would actually work in a lab to do mm-hmm. any programming. Um, <clears throat> so, but I did get a computer science degree. I um, I don't know why I ended up choosing that as opposed to electrical engineering or any other engineering. But ultimately, I like kind of discrete problems, things that you know have to do with true or false kind of logic that always excited me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up choosing that. But I, yeah, I did learn computing, programming, um, starting with college.
5: Okay. So what, in in the field, what kind of specific
6: area are you researching right now? So, um, so the area that I do research has to do with um, finding computational models of trust. So um, more or less everything that I've done in my career, one way or another, evolved from a way of representing information. So um, so basically, you know, from when I started doing my PhD, it was about representing different kinds of information. Um, and, you know, that has to do with uh, figuring out how you can represent things that are true or false with things that are shades of true, you know, like a ranking information. When you Google, you rank things. Okay. Um, and then uh, slowly evolved to uh, things that have to do with how do I represent um, why something is trustworthy or not trustworthy, what kinds of um, factors lead to it, why, why we trust certain information and not the other. Yeah. So, and how would you model that in a way so that you can um, say that this model makes sense for this problem and then it computes the right thing. So um, So that ended up kind of evolving from my interest in understanding how people behave in social media what kind of information they consume to figuring out what kind of models make sense under which conditions.
5: Interesting. It's kind of like, well, it's definitely real-world applications there. <laughs> so kind of moving away from the science but, and into being a woman uh, in the field, uh, I don't know a lot about the history of computer science and computers. I just, I'm speculating, basically. But I do know that it did used to be mostly a woman... A woman's job, really, to kind of work the computers. Then there was some transition somewhere, and it kind of switched uh, into the other other genders. Um, do, do you know about this? <laughs> Have you seen this in action ever? Is <laughs> like more men in the fields currently, right?
6: Well, it, it is it is so right now, um, but it you know now it's changing again. It continuously changes. Um, but I did observe things in a different way because when I was um, an undergraduate. Um, we had about 50% women, 50% uh, men, but I was in Turkey. When I came here in graduate school, it was a lot less. Um, and um, and in the undergraduate, I observed that it was less, but it's improving. Mm-hmm. So it's always in flux. But I did read that, uh, in fact, there were definitely more women. There were lots of women who were involved in the earlier... Um, you know, um, development of programs, development of systems like Apple, they have somewhat been uh, erased from the history that, yeah. you know, even from the pictures or even the movies that had to do with, you know, the history that kind of completely downplays the roles that they had or what is cool. Um, it's, um, you know, it's it's a continuously changing thing about, you know, what we consider culturally, you know, whose job <laughs> I read somewhere that, in fact, um, <laughs> according to old history, um, you know, pink was supposed to be a strong color for men. <laughs> it's <laughs> changing again, though. <laughs>
2: it's
6: coming you know, back, right? <laughs> well, you know, it is just that, the you know, culture continues to change. Uh, but, you know, the change that I observed was not that there were fewer women, but I am now observing that there are more women now. And, um, but, you know, computer science was... Um, um, founded by marginalized people Mm -hmm. there are very, um, you know, our founder, founding uh, uh, researchers are many, many of them are women or gay or, you know, many, many, um, you know, at the time, highly marginalized. And so, you know, computer science as a field owes a lot to them. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of that is not being recognized more. So that I, I am seeing that in fact, the field is becoming more open at least in the uh, undergraduate that I've seen, and hopefully it will carry over to the industry that yeah, know, has not yet keeps happened. keeps growing, right? <laughs> exactly.
5: So in your department, uh, this was also kind of related to that, uh, have you experienced any sort of unconscious biases or deliberate biases
6: from your peers in the field? I'm pretty sure that I have. Implicit bias and biases can take many, many forms. You know, it could... Uh, It could very well be that, uh, you know, your ideas are dismissed. Even, um, you know, when you come and say, look, this is my research area, people don't somehow assume that you may know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, You know, even if it's your research area, you must really be the, you know, inferior, you know, researcher of this field regardless. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not always clear, you know, when people say these things, what they think, what they do, but... um, I don't know if I've experienced this in my own department, but it's something that, you know, we we all are aware of that can happen. And, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we always watch out for is, you know, is everybody getting enough time to get their opinions or ideas? Or, you know, are some people getting more interrupted, less interrupted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that happens a lot as well. Um, and, you know, in my field, in my research area, for example, people have moved on to... Um, uh, reviews of, you know, research papers that are uh, double blind, meaning that uh, people who are reviewing the papers don't know who the authors are, because very often you see um, those biases uh, work not only for, you know, like gender or different types of biases, but also for institutions, you know, certain mm-hmm. institutions, whatever they write must be yeah. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> um, um So, you know, um, academia is, uh, you know, kind of part of the universe and it has all the biases that the whole universe has and maybe maybe others that they don't. Um, So there are many, many such biases that you have to maneuver around every day.
5: So just one last question. Um, Do you have any sort of message that you want to share with uh, any young girls who are kind of interested in pursuing a computer science degree or (laughs) getting into science in general?
6: Well, I would say the first thing that I always tell everybody is that, you know, You will always hear lots of things and you know there's good things there's bad things it's the first thing you have to do is try to see if you like it yourself instead of not based on what others think but your own experience Mm -hmm. the only way you can do that is um, by trying and the thing is that you know you will hear a lot of different uh, things and um, you know some may be true some may not be true but it's up to you to make up your mind. However, what I can say is that computer science field is such a broad and uh, diverse field. There's so many different things you can do, and it is so exciting, and it is so many, um, it gives you so much power to manipulate so many uh, different aspects of your world by just programming. Um, and, and there are different kinds of computer science uh, problems. There is, you know, things that have to do with programming, That things that have to do with designing. So, um, you know, don't make up your mind just just try it Mm -hmm. and if you have a bad experience don't assume that has anything to do with you but you know there could be bad teachers there could be a bad environment um you know go and try it in a different place you know try to come to it with what they call
0: beginner's mind well thank you very much for coming down today thank you very much that was former intern Sophia Callahan interviewing Professor Sybil Adali for her series on STEM. Our past interns have created incredible content around topics that interest them. And if you or someone else is interested in internship, you can visit mediasanctuary.org slash intern.
1: Now we welcome Brad Monkell and Travis Steely for our weekly chuckle. Welcome, guys.
7: Thanks, Marshall. Thanks, Dina. What's going on? Thank both of you so much for having us again. Travis, thank you for being
8: here. Of course. Thank you for having me.
7: Um, Travis is an excellent comedian. (laughs) Debatable. (laughs) You can catch him. He puts on a lot of great shows in the area, and there's a lot to see. Um, And you can also catch him uh, touring around the country with the Super Troopers. And uh, I'm glad to finally sit and talk with you a little bit because i've seen you around a lot of shows but yeah. i feel like we haven't really gotten to sit and chat i haven't really got to hear when you're sets in a little while too
8: it's one of those things that like you and i have always been trying to schedule this and just something happened every single time and like today was another one where it just started like downpouring snow like an hour before here i was like i'm making this interview i was like it's been a long it's been a long enough time i'm making this interview but, i appreciate your commitment <laughs> it's a honda civic it'll plow through anything i can get there <laughs> so uh, yeah no it's been fun man it's a uh, you know comedy is a fun struggle i guess is that the term for it yeah yeah, but uh it's just uh slowly pushing out there the hardest thing is the new material stuff where you're just like all right this person saw me three months ago and they want to see me again i'm like all right you gotta give it a little break give it a break i gotta get some new stuff give it some time but
7: yeah well you're always putting on stuff so i I see where the struggle comes from i know upcoming you got a you got uh, January 20th at the Fairways in Half Moon, mm-hmm. and January 27th at McGregor's in Saratoga. Um, and uh, just before we get into things, uh, your uh, what are your Instagram and uh, Facebook handles?
8: Uh, Travis Steeley, pretty much, uh, or at Travis Steeley, yeah, I guess. Steel-E-Y. Um, yeah, S T E A L E Y. Long story short, there's another Travis Steeley on Facebook, and um, don't go for him. He's not a fan of me. He does not like anything comedy-related, so... Uh, You'll, you'll be able to tell the difference between the two. <laughs> I want to see you go at him. <laughs> oh, he's, uh, he does not like me. Oh. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs>
7: um, so, you know, I, like I said, I haven't gotten to see you in a while. And I'm, mm-hmm. I feel like from what I remember, the sets I had seen of years, I feel like they aired on the cleaner side. I, but I feel like I could almost see uh, you going either way. I feel yeah. like I could see you performing a lot of settings where you have to be clean and also like where do you actually lie
8: on um spectrum? i mean when i started i did what everyone was guilty of you know i went dirty oh, when yeah. i started because that's you know that's what I, oh that was the laughs and then thankfully i had someone kind of pull me under his wing and then um basically you know he's like yeah you can work dirty but you're not going to get a lot of work so then i had to force myself to work clean and get clean and all that stuff and then you know i still have a few of the Borderline could be dirty stuff that I'm like, all right, if I just change these two words instantly, it's clean. So it's like, I have a bunch of that. Um, so, I mean, at this point, 70, 30 clean, dirty, I don't know, 80, 20, it's kind of, but I mean, if I have to, if I have, like, because I do a lot of, like, uh, banquet halls and, uh, like, golf courses, I run, which is kind of weird. I don't even golf, but um, I do a lot of them, and um, you can't go up there dropping, you know, terrible, offensive jokes or anything like that. Yeah. So it just it forces you to, get clean and work, you know, clean material and work stuff that's relatable. But then once you kind of get into the niche, niche, is that the term? Niche? Yeah. Once you get in the niche of it, I guess, yeah. It kind of goes with the flow and you can kind of pick up on it pretty quickly. Yeah. So So besides,
7: I guess that like content restriction aspect of it, what's, What's the biggest difference between, like, a golf club cl- crowd <laughs> and, like, a comedy club crowd? So, Besides the golf clubs.
8: Oh, the golf is there. <laughs> so with a comedy club crowd, like, you know what you're walking into. I mean, granted, you're going to get a lot more, I guess, drunks and obnoxious people at a comedy club. That's just we've all seen it. We've all dealt with it. Um, but you, get a, you still get fun, hot crowds, you know, while you're doing it as well. So, like, most comedy clubs, you know what they're there for should be there for comedy you are still gonna see once or twice the people there the golf club aspect um there are a lot of members so they all know each other so every now and then you'll get the person just you know you should rag on this guy well, well why should i because we all know him and we all don't like him and it's like okay so stupid me every time will fall for that and do the one joke but then the whole place erupts and i'm like it was the stupidest joke i've ever said but they all know each <laughs> other so it's i guess there's a terrible explanation of the difference but um the golf club, I guess, a little more ritzy. They normally don't go out much. This is their one event a year kind of thing. So if it's not a wedding at the banquet, they're going to the comedy club, stuff like that. Or, or they're going to the comedy show. Yeah. So, I mean, at a comedy club, you know, there's the people that could go to a comedy club every weekend, those same people. So it's just, I don't know. I, if I had to choose, yes, I'll go to a comedy club every time. Uh, Pay-wise, I'll go to a golf club every time. So yeah. it's kind of got to weigh my options.
7: Well, it's good to be able to to fit in both those settings, it's just mm-hmm. nice to have a challenge, I'm sure, even oh, if it's yeah. not yep. as directly fun, but I can relate doing, like, uh, I've played jazz gigs at golf clubs, mm-hmm. where it's, I guess the equivalent for, for doing that is like, oh, you, you're going to get a nice tip if you if you oblige this person and, and play a Frank Sinatra tune mm-hmm. or something, like that's, yep. you know, then after that, you go back to playing something they don't recognize. Exactly. But the stakes are higher. I feel oh like. yeah, 100%. Show, I feel like you get more trouble. I mean, what I want to know is, even on your best behavior at one of these very straight-laced <laughs> professional gigs, Black tie have, you events, ma- yeah. have you managed to, to like, um, take people off or <laughs> people still not taking
8: it well? I mean, it happens. There are times that it has happened. Yeah. Um, thankfully, so, like, um, one of the venues that I work with, uh, he ironically owns, like, four other golf courses. So he understands what I do and all this stuff. So if one person complains... He's not upset about it. If two people complain, he's like, all right, you know, whatever. Three, he's like, all right, what's going on? You know, stuff like that.
7: So As long as you don't go over par.
8: Exactly. (laughs) Perfect analogy right there. Yeah. You got to go eagle or whatever (laughs) it is on that one. So um i mean there has been times um there's one thing that you know now like uh, with booking shows and stuff you have to look at the show itself and you're like okay who can i book who can i not book for this room who can do this who can do that that's one thing that as a producer it took a little while to learn you can't just book you know your five best friends every single time because you're like all right best friend two and three are great but best friend four i know he's going to say something offensive but I also want to come back to this venue. So it's like, I got to weigh my options. Um, I have had a time one time where a headliner who I thought was going to be good, just had an off day and just went to town on the whole place. I, but it was weird because the first half hour was him berating everybody. And then the last five minutes he brought it back somehow. And I was like, Okay, I'm not sure how to handle this one right now. Was it Bill Burr? It was not. No, I don't have <laughs> connections for Burr. Sorry, you didn't, didn't pull a Philly rant yeah. on me. No, but uh, I don't have connections for that one. But it was a yeah. comic out in Mass. I won't, I won't say. Yeah, so. I'm no. not gonna drop names. I, I think we get in trouble make for you that. Do that. <laughs> I mean no. I'm trying to do this new thing where I'm just, you know, I don't really try to have problems with other comics or anything like that, so it's...
7: Well, there's yeah. enough, like, work to go around. Exactly. It's, you yeah. it's nice to mix up the scene and kind of bring everybody up together. Exactly. It's just, you know, it shouldn't... You know, you, sh- you try to fit people in where they where it makes sense for where they're at, I guess. Exactly. You
8: know. And, like, there's times... So there's this thing that I've brought up with a couple comics and stuff that I was lucky enough when I got into it that um, there were people that... I, I guess they're called gatekeepers, Um I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I'm thankful for it because they basically wouldn't even acknowledge you if you weren't funny. So it just forced me to get better. I was like, oh, I need to go home. I need to write. I need to put my head in my notebook. I need to come back to this mic and try it again. Oh, it didn't work? Okay, I got to come back and do it again and do it again, doing it that way. Um, I don't know if that scene's still there now with a couple people, which, like, I mean, some people might take it the wrong way, might take it the right way. I, I understand why some people can definitely take it the wrong way um i've used it as just fuel to be like i gotta get better like that's the way it is for me on that mindset yeah well i think
7: there's actual gatekeeping there's like barriers that people have to face yeah to like actually break into an industry or or be taken seriously and and there are like serious examples of that but when an open mic like the open mic level is the training ground you can't exactly. expect anything so it's not gatekeeping if you don't get a gig at that level it's exactly because people might not have ever even seen you do a professional set like they, they mm-hmm. even if they like you they don't necessarily know what you can do mm-hmm. so it's it's a I've definitely heard that thing but I feel like there's almost two meetings when people exactly say, gatekeeper yeah. it's like you it's it's are you a working professional do you actually like put the entire show and, in like and, first not getting on the person you think is Is you know, cool. I don't. Yeah. No, I I get that. Yeah. It's you know, better way to say it. But
8: no, I understand. Yeah, because there's there's times where like I'll go to a mic and like I'll bomb. Like, but the thing is, I'm trying five fresh new minutes. Like, I'm not up there to be like, I need to impress these five people. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm there to see what this five minute sounds like. I want to record it. I want to take it home and work it. And then there's times that I'll kill. But I'm like, it really wasn't that good. But all right, cool. Thanks, guys. So it just, I don't know. It just depends on, I guess, on the night or the comic. But like you said, you can tell the difference between a working comic and someone who, you know, is working to get to the working comic, if, yeah. if that makes sense. And I'm
7: I'm still working on that stuff. Like, I'm still so new. I, I'm developing those skills. But I think it's, when I see someone who's, who's just starting out, I think it's more impressive to see a person who might bomb at open mics, but they're consistently bringing new material to the table and refining yep. it, not playing it safe every time. Exactly. You know I mean? Yep. Um, but... It's great to hear your insights, Travis. I hope I get to catch a show soon. Once definitely, again... Man. I, I got to get you. Yeah, I got to get you on
8: uh, one first. I got get you on a
7: couple. I'll have you on something at some point soon, too. But if anyone's interested in catching one of Travis's sets coming up, he's going to be uh, January 20th at the Fairways in Half Moon and January 27th at McGregor's in Saratoga.
8: Thank you so much for joining us, Travis. Thank you guys great for talking. having me. Definitely. Well, thanks I for felt, coming. I definitely talk too much, but that's all right. Oh, no. it's great to see such a
0: range of, of comedians come through here, so... Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Brad.
1: Thanks, Sina. Thanks, Marshall. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, up next, we hear from Tom Francis on the poetry of Nathan Smith.
4: Nathan Smith is a
3: 25-year-old PhD student at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, studying biochemistry and writing poetry to stay sane. He has been writing since he was 16, growing up in the Appalachian Mountains in Pennsylvania. These days, he has been published in literary magazines, Bailey's Beads, and Renaissance, and received first-place awards in the Talking Without Borders Poetry Competition and the McKinney Writing Contest for Poetry. He published his first anthology, Cotton Candy's Sun, in December, and hopes to publish more of his work in the future. Nathan is one of the featured poets at the Hudson Valley Writers Guild Year in Review Reading at Mocha Lisa's Cafe in Clifton Park on December 2nd, 2023.
9: This is my book from Candy Sun. Um, I brought some over there. Um, but uh, there's like a bunch of different things in here. I kind of went a lot all over the place, you know, relationship. Um, I study Alzheimer's and my grandmother had Alzheimer's, so I write about that a lot. Um, I talk about being LGBT. Uh, but this one is a poem I wrote for a lost love. Um, it's called Nameless Poem. I wish there was a collection of words I could say to you. A phrase to stop the clock from ticking in the dark, to bring back the lights only for a moment, to cast away the darkness so that I may see your face one more time. There are so many nameless poems still trapped inside this head, your name tightly wrapped around each one, woven through the fabric of language itself, as if all I know how to speak is you. But they will never be spoken. They will never be released from the captive of my skull. They cannot be. They know the consequences all too well, as they know the price to be paid. So I guard it. I sit through the fields of my memory, picking weeds that used to be my love for you, and tossing them to the wind like dandelions, exactly how you taught me, making forgetting me seem all too easy, like forgetting me was an art you've been practicing since you first learned to talk. But I am still just a student. I may never learn all that I have forgotten. I may never forgive what you've forgotten, and this is not the end we wanted, but here we are. Another nameless poem that once had a name, perhaps it was yours, but maybe it wasn't. Did you erase the name from your worn out love poems? Or did someone teach you a new one? My name does not bow down to erasers, nor does it surrender to being covered over. My name means a gift. So it's not my fault if you were ungrateful. My mother granted me the gall the day she opened my eyes so when my name shines through the paint, when I become all the writings on the wall, when all other names come crashing down to reveal mine, remember that you brought this on yourself. And when you miss me, miss the taste of my name on your lips. Remember that you are a nameless poem in my mind, and you wrote it that way. Wow. Wow. But, um, so I know we were talking earlier about form. Um, I wrote my first ever like poem in a form, um, like a month ago, or even not even, like a few weeks ago. Um, and because of D. Colin, who you may or may not know, love uh, D. Colin, so uh, but she writes this poem that's called A Glossa and it takes a quatrain, a well-known quatrain. She uses one from Maya Angelou, I uses one from Robert Frost. Um, basically, a quatrain is four lines uh, that rhyme, and um, you make it into a poem where you have four stanzas, each stanza is ten lines, and the last line of every stanza is one of the lines from a quatrain. Um, and so I picked uh, Robert Frost's poem um, that goes, Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here. He Watch his woods fill up the snow. It's a cute little quatrain. Um, I have made it into a gay poem. um, So that's what I will be reading. (laughs) But here we go. I do not visit Pennsylvania much anymore, or the forests I once called home to wander through these trees at night and see them sway in pale moonlight. I can't hold his hand like we once did, or curl curl up in his truck where we once hid. I can't kiss his lips or hold him tight, though I can dream of him every night. I can breathe the air and twilight's glow, whose these are I think I know. The boy with eyes and ocean blue, who'd stay with me till one or two. I miss his laugh and I miss his joy. I can't believe how much I've missed that boy. I've missed him since we went apart, and most of all I miss his heart. But he's not here, not in his glen, or all the places he would have been. He's not anywhere we used to know. His house is in the village, though. I might drive past his house at dawn and see the frost across his lawn. Roll down my window to feel the breeze, to chill my bones and watch me freeze. I will not stop to call his name for what we had won't be the same. Instead, I'll drive to the stop and go and write his name into the snow. I'll buy some salt and a case of beer. He will not see me stopping here. I'll start the car back up the hill, past baseball fields and a paper mill, past garden gates and endless trees and the bridge where he said he loved me. And when I reach my parents' house, I'll stop. I'll cry so much they'll need a mop. It hurts to know he's really gone, that I'm still here, but he's moved on. I'll grab the beer and walk alone to watch his woods fill up with snow.
5: Mm.
9: <laughs> um, this is a poem that I read on one of the first open mics I ever did in Troy. Um, and I kind of led to the book because someone reached out to me about wanting to publish a book. So it means a lot to me, um, but it's called Shepherd's Story. Today I realized the word shepherd is one E away from a sheep herd which isn't enough to write a poem about, but was enough to make me not kill myself today. Was enough to make my mind wander down the hallways of the English language. How seer is one W away from swear, and how you swore we would always be a part of each other's lives, and how those memories still burn. How dad is one E away from dead, and how I used to wish mine was. How mine used to wish I was, and how to me he already is. Or perhaps how nose is one O away from noose and how I can still smell the cigarettes on your breath that you couldn't live without. How live is one R away from liver and how mine still hasn't recovered from the nights I drank to forget you. And how I am one letter away from nothing, one word away from endlessness or brokenness or death, but enough about words or about letters. It will only remind me of the ones I burned or the ones that I wrote to you. And there are ones I'm still writing to the me who will someday be able to breathe again. But I came here to talk about sheep, or how they move with the breeze like dandelion seeds gently riding the flow of time without worry you see i wish i was a sheep sometimes Their soft woolly coats protecting from harm that way they never have to worry about things like student loans or you and they'll use it like an insult call you a sheep when you're doing what's right or when you're doing what's wrong or even when you're just following the law what they mean is the herd The group mentality that is just believing what they've heard, like how an A is the only difference between the two, or that what you believe is always right no matter what it is you believe, and I believe I was a mistake. But you know the word individual has three I's in it, but a mistake has one too. And a mistake begins and ends with me, so perhaps that's what I am, a mistake or a sheeting. They told me at church that Jesus was my shepherd, but never mentioned their intentions or plans to sacrifice my body on their altar, to use my blood and paint their doorways so the Lord knows who cut me down until the wounds finally win. And I suppose that's where they get the term scapegoat, to pile your sins on my back, to be held within my wool or my soul, and then call me a slur and then call me an abomination, or a sinner, or whatever you need to say to forget the weight of your own wretched guilt, and then call me saved. But if I've always been the sheep, then I guess that makes you the wolf. And if you ever feel guilty for the pain that you caused me, or all the tears that I cried for you, then I hope it does not keep you up at night. And if you lie in bed thinking of the letters I wrote for you, or all the words we said to one another, and wonder what you could have done to save us, then try counting sheep. Tonight, I will write a happy poem, a poem about how I survived the day, or maybe about the day that I have intended to survive tomorrow, or the good memories, the ones I use as explanations for why I deserve the others. I am writing a happy poem to myself because I deserve it, because I earned it, because the last time I wrote a happy poem, it was about you, and I cannot accept that. So let this poem be about healing, and growth, and about not holding grudges anymore. I deserve it because I went to work today, because I met with my friends today, because I read my soul in front of an audience of strangers and I did not cry. I did not trip or fall or falter or give up halfway through. I finished my poem with shaky legs and wobbly arms, but I'm still here with rapid breath and sweaty palms and I still did it and I'll do it again and again and again or however long it takes me to stop being angry at myself for loving you and maybe even after that, And I'm not really sure if I do love you anymore. And sometimes I forget about you or how I loved you or how I still miss your touch regardless. But there are still days where a song or a quote or a phrase will remind remind me of all the things we once were and all the things we could have become together. But this isn't a sad poem or a breakup poem. Those have already been written. This is a happy poem about how I made it, about how some wreckage can be pieced together back again. Piece together again on solid ground, and they should be, and how it's okay to rot- cry while reading your own poems, how they would want you to, even the happy ones, and how I no longer let my insecurities speak for me, no longer let the wind blowing through my hair be my voice, and this is a happy poem, because I survived every journey that it took to arrive here today, at this place. I am alive, and that is something worth writing about.
3: For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis.
0: And we've got that poetry segment. Um, we've got some comedy and some poetry every Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. Hickey.
1: And I'm Marshall Hildreth. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines for Mark Dunley, segment producers Mark Dunley, Moses Nagel, Brad Monkell, and Tom Francis. Special thank you Uh <clears throat> as well to Travis Steeley and this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations if you value independent media consider a gift of any amount or become a sanctuary sustainer with a monthly donation go to mediasanctuary.org slash donate for more info
0: and we want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to HMM at mediasanctuary.org. You can either get involved or tip us off to a story that you think would be really cool. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thank you, our listeners. We appreciate you.